Welcome back. Hello. To Mysteries. Murders. Moldstills. And your moms. We're the moms. I'm Julie. I'm Nicole. And it's very early on a Sunday. My yeah. fault. No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I'm not even wearing a bra this morning. Like, I just, I left my shit on and walked out the door. I did get coffee, though, because how can, I can't function without coffee. it. Yeah. Um, happy October 1st. Yay. Second today, I guess. Yeah. So, happy October. Um, so, really quick, because we've brought this up a bunch of times in, like, previous stories. One, the Maryland movie Blonde. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. Did you watch it? No, not yet. It's like... It's a long movie. It's a really long movie. Yeah, and yeah. I, I just don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> so, like, I had really high hopes for it. I thought it was going to be great. I understood that it was not really, like, a, a biography by any means. It was based off of the, um, the book written by Joyce Carol Oates. And I was like, okay, 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 okay. So then I watched it, and there are just, like, there's just a handful of scenes that, like... I don't understand. And I like odd movies, you know, like the quote-unquote artsy shit for the most part. And I can see, like, the overall vision of the director. And I can't see that with some of these scenes. It's just, it just seems unnecessary and vulgar. And not in a good way. Like, I'm cool with vulgarity. Like, I'm, like you know, I, we watch fucking slasher films. We're good with that. But, like, I just, it just, I don't know. And then... One scene in particular was the scene with JFK. Completely unnecessary. Like, absolutely unnecessary. Um, but Anna the Armist did a great job in her role and all of that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, just watching her performance alone is is really good. I'm definitely going to watch it. I just haven't, I don't know, I have a lot of stuff. I yes. feel like I'm watching a lot of things right now. And, and then the other thing that I found out uh, is earlier this year, um, somebody took it upon themselves to try to find out who Norma Jean's actual father was. Oh yeah, and they did, and right? They did yeah, which and he was crazy. a guy who worked at the studio with her mother, mm-hmm. and uh, according to like his grandkids now, which was a story told on to them, is that at some point Norma Jean figured out who her father was, and even once she had become this Marilyn Monroe persona um, and was famous. Uh, like knocked on his door one day and was like, you know, I think you're my dad. And he's like, no, I'm not. Yeah. And he's like, I am married. I have my own family. Mm-hmm. You are not, you are not my child. And wanted nothing to do with her essentially. So um, he may not have known though, for sure either. No, probably not. But cause I mean, from what I understand, it could have been numerous. Earring. My earring just flew out. That's right. what that noise was. Yeah. But the, from what I understand, it could have been numerous folks. At the time, yeah. Because her so. mom, I think, was moonlighting as a, a red light woman to make ends meet. Yeah. So I don't um, mean it in a bad way. Just no. That he yeah. may have actually thought that. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, it could be me. It could be. It could be like a handful of other dudes. Yeah. So like. But. I would just say take with a grain of salt him like dismissing her because you know that's but, also yeah this woman though found, had a lock I guess everybody has locks of her fucking hair because Kim so, Kardashian people do was, that people keep weird well Kim Kardashian was gifted one after she wore the dress and this woman somehow got from the corner um, got a lock of her hair and used it for DNA and then this guy's grandkids she got samples from his grandkids and it was all matchy matchy so i yeah anyway good so that's that's my take on that yeah i'm watching Dahmer finally i I, heard that there's some backlash for that movie too or i guess is it a movie or a show are there episodes i don't want to talk about the backlash people are watching something that they are like it was the families oh yeah they they haven't seen that at all they, I read one article, it was just the families have recently started coming out and that they, you know, they just feel like they're kind of reliving the trauma of everything that happened all over again, which, you know, I can see, but this isn't the first Dahmer movie. I was, okay, that was where I was going to go with this. This is not like, this is new. Right. I mean, the episode I watched last night, I haven't watched the whole thing, but the episode I watched last night is basically a lot of the stuff from my friend Dahmer, mm-hmm. which is based off a graphic novel that his high school friend wrote. Oh. Which is actually one of my favorites. I thought it was really well done. Yeah. Um, and I understand that. I do. But 
I also think that like understanding the minds of people like this is important. Yeah. Like having a grasp on what you know kind of creates them maybe. Well and yeah, because like his situation is so crazy and so weird and I'm you know, and people are like, I feel I don't want to watch it because it's making me like feel empathy for him and I don't want to feel empathy for him. And I'm like, you can feel empathy for what he went through as a person mm-hmm. without feeling empathy without for condoning his... what he did. Exactly. Like empathy isn't you're you're misunderstanding the point. Right. And no one's trying to excuse his actions in any way. Right. They're just showing you this is his actual life. It's not like some kind of like made up yeah. you know, backstory yeah. in a horror movie. This is what his life was. This is him trying to figure out how to deal with his homosexuality, for one thing, which Mm -hmm. clearly he had issues with. He didn't do that right at all. No, No. he did a really bad job. And maybe we, you know, we see our children struggling with these things. We should be supportive and not condemn them. Right. You know, like people do, especially in this community. So I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about that. I did see the memes. I think it's really good. And they're my favorite memes of... (laughs) One is... Uh, Evan Peters is collecting serial killer roles like Pokemon, and yes. the other is, can somebody please put Evan Peters next in a next movie or show where he plays a happy character and can smile? Because <laughs> he really hasn't played anything that's like a happy. No, no, he's so good though. I don't know. My favorite was Mare of Easttown, personally. That was the best. His eyes are black. I was watching an interview for the mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Dahmer thing and he has there's no difference between the iris and the pupil it's all just one mass <laughs> like is that a contact maybe I don't know anyway anyway I like Dahmer I don't care what people have to say about it and I'm sorry about the victims families if they because nobody has said anything like I haven't read anything like that at mm. all and I've read a lot of other people complaining about it for other reasons and someone pointed something out that were like you know, it was like a meme or some dumb thing, but it was like, apparently, all of you all that are shocked by watching this, apparently you didn't know who Jeffrey Dahmer was. Right. I mean, like, <laughs> dude, like, look up a headline, man. Did he, you not see this plot coming? Yeah. Right. Like, I don't know why everyone's so fucking surprised. Sorry, it really bothers me because it's like, I like, okay, so, in, and the reason I'm watching this with my husband with bees because he doesn't really do true crime like mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. This is the first one that, like, him and I both remember. Oh, I see. Yeah. Like, I remember when this happened. Like, he remembers the news coverage, like, because it was huge. Because right. he was eating people. Like, Ugh. oh, man. The part but, where they showed, like, him serving that woman a sandwich. I'm like, I can't watch it. I'm going to throw up. <laughs> but, <laughs> I can't watch it. <laughs> but, like, my whole point is, like, it, for us, it's the first time we, like, yeah. we knew about other serial killers, probably. Like, we've heard about it, like, oh, Zodiac yeah. and, like, right. But, like, this is one that happened. It was your, your generation. Yeah, it yeah. happened in the early 90s. Like, I was, you know, in high school. Yeah. So it was kind of, like, so we're both watching it because we mm-hmm. kind of remember, right. you know. Which, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are, you know. Well, I'm watching it because yeah. it's me and he's watching it. <laughs> no, that's fair. Yeah. But the Blonde movie, I think, you know, everyone should give it a chance. I did, I'm not going to lie, I fast-forwarded through all of the parts where the, uh, fetus was talking to her i i just in my myself <laughs> i didn't like it i'm like i don't like this and i fast forward through it and uh yeah i mean there's some really great parts i think i'll watch it i haven't just it's just like i have so much i feel like i've well, well now it's horror movie season so yeah well some part. of the things that people were saying is like oh they made her a joke and they didn't point out any of the things and i'm like well if you take the movie as a whole, then I think you missed a lot of the parts where they did show that Marilyn had intelligence, or Norma Jean, yep. that she had intelligence. She stood, she stood up for herself several times in the movie. She understood the jokes. She was always reading. These were, I guess you had to be kind of paying attention well, and to I pick mean, those things up. But also, it's generate, It's you can't, she didn't act the same way we would act now because it was a different time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just her, and I didn't see it, but like she would know if she, she catching and understanding that someone is making fun of you or that this is happening or people are using you at like as a joke. Yeah. Like understanding that and then how you react to it. Like, yeah. Put it in context. Yeah. You know, 
But also, this is, again, I'm just going to say, based off of the book. I know. And this is the way that Marilyn was written in this book. And I understand the need for getting, like, a true, maybe, Marilyn biopic where all facets Isn't there of, a different one that is there that? Was, there's the, uh, it was like, a, a, My Day with Marilyn or something. Yeah, but there was, a, I thought there was another one, too. Oh, I there's mean, the one on Netflix where they go through, the like, the tapes, the lost yeah, tapes. Yeah, but, like, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing. There's I, so many. There's a bunch. That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah, and I really like Joyce Carol Oates. I'm reading a book right now by her. And it is not for everyone. That is all mm-hmm. I'm going to say. I have a handful of her books. <laughs> I don't know how to actually even describe it. Like, I'm reading it, and I'm like, wow, I wouldn't, I couldn't actually recommend this to someone because I'd be afraid that they would be like, I How can't dare believe you? you let me read this book. <laughs> it's pretty freaking disturbing. But anyway. All right. We should get started. Let's do this. All right. So I have a listener story to start us off. Our listener, Nikki, not to be confused with me, the only people that call me Nikki are my dad and my mom really? and my brother. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't think I've ever called you anything other than no. Nicola. No one does, except for them. (laughs) All right. In the 1860s, the Beardsley family, living in Chenango County, New York, so not far from here, um, they had a son named Merritt, and Merritt was afraid of the dark and always slept with a lit candle on the windowsill. Okay. And he came down with a fever when he was around eight, and his health started to decline. And the story goes that his last words to his parents were something along the line of, I don't want to be in the dark. So his dad built him this little tomb, and it's called Little Merritt's Tomb. And it's a little mausoleum built over the grave with a glass window where the family put a lit candle every night. Oh, my God. And it's still there. It's in Oxford, New York. And there's a Facebook group. So if you just, like, Facebook on Facebook search Little Merritt's Tomb, um, people have maintained it and restored it, along with some other graves. It's like one of those older cemeteries. Yeah. It's not like in a main, right? Yeah. You know, cemetery, um, and it's really cool looking, and it's really just really interesting. So, oh my gosh, yeah. that so, is beautiful and heartbreaking all at the same time. Know, and not at all like the rest of the things I plan to talk about. Oh God, yeah. Okay, so as we discussed. Try and get through this as quick as possible. The bit background. You have here. a graph. I well, it was easier <laughs> to do it this way than to yeah. Never mind. Oh, I love it. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the Cecil Hotel. We're going to start. I mean, obviously, the title for my story is Hotel of Horrors. Cool. Not and to be confused with the American Horror Story. Actually, yes, that's the inspiration. Really? Mm-hmm. That's cool. I like it. I dig so, it. So. The Cecil was built in 1924. So I'm going to give you, I'm sorry, what I was trying to say. I forgot. I got all excited. <laughs> and I haven't had enough coffee. I'm going to give you a brief history of the hotel itself. Just just the hotel, like the building. The quite, rundown. Yeah. The quick rundown. I'm not probably going to go through all this. I'm going to go through it quick. Then I'm going to tell you about people that died there. And then I'm going to do one quick story today about someone. And then I have a couple more for the rest of the month. So... Cecil was built in 1924 by three hoteliers, <laughs> William Banks Hainer, Hanner, Charles L. Dix, and Robert H. Shops. So it was, I know, right? It was a destination hotel um, for business travelers and tourists. Now, understand that there was a lot of hotels in L.A., in this area being built around this time. Oh, yeah, because it's becoming more popular. Yeah, so the problem with this one is basically like it just didn't make it not in the way the others did right okay so um anyway it's it is designed by loy lester smith in the bows art style and so that com- it becomes important like they'll eventually get it um designated historical monument mm-hmm. because of the art art Our architecture blah blah wow words <laughs> Words are hard this morning, it turns out. Um, So anyway, it will get, it will um, end up eventually getting, you know, like they can't really get rid of it because of that. So I guess that's somewhat significant. It cost 1.5 million to complete. Um, It had an opulent marble lobby with stained glass windows, potted palms, and alabaster statuary. So it was like very, you know, 1920, like what you would imagine for fancy 1920s, right? Like literally that's what it was. Um, 
So, but not long after it got built, like, and everything was going on, five years later, the Great Depression hits. Um, it's supposedly, and I couldn't really find any facts about this, did hit another heyday in the 40s and was pretty popular again in the 40s. Um, but then it started to decline because the area, like the four mile radius where it is, is literally known as Skid Row. There's over 10,000 homeless people that live in that four mile radius. So wow. its location became yeah, part of the so issue. Great. So jumping ahead, way ahead to 2011, it was rebranded as Stay on Main. And if you watch, okay, so I'll probably have to reference this several times. Netflix did a show a year ago, maybe, yeah. maybe about a year ago about the Cecil as specifically as relates to Elisa Lamb, who I will cover later another episode um and they talked to the person who was the manager a lot during that mm -hmm. um that like that show which i thought was really interesting and she was the one that was kind of in charge of it when it was called the stay on main but what she explained and what like is that the stay on main part they had like they had a separate entrance mm -hmm. there was still the old part that still had the cheap residential housing mm -hmm. that the cecil became known for so what happened was people would like just live there it wasn't it wasn't so much a hotel anymore it became like efficiency like apartments. yeah like housing basically like low low income housing you had daily and monthly rates things mm -hmm. like that um so when they, even when they tried to renovate it in 2011 they still had to like keep that part and uh, so like there was another oh, right. entrance so like it's kind of a weird they were obligated yeah, yeah. exactly um and then in 2014 it was sold to a new york city um, hotelier named Richard Bourne for $30 million, which what? is crazy to me. Oh my God. And I, I don't, he was going to really like redevelop it and bring it back to its glory. But then COVID hit. I mean. So everything, like, I feel like there's also like this hotel is kind of cursed in itself. Like, nothing it. goes the way it should, right? Like, this guy's like, you know what? I'm going to come in and fix it all up. But and, for yeah. 30 fucking million? I know, it's crazy. Oh, my God. Um, so it was de deemed a historical cultural monument um, because of its because it's representative of an early 20th century American hotel and its historic significance of its architect's body of work. So that was in 2017 by Los Angeles City Council. Um, I Good probably should have architect. started off, by the way, this is in L.A. <laughs> um, Hopefully you knew that. I just assume everyone yeah. knows that it's in L.A. I don't know why I assume these things. Maybe it's at the end of one of the points of the five-star pentagram that makes up L.A. Yes. And that's why it doesn't work. <laughs> so it closed down for a little bit, obviously, with COVID and stuff. So it did reopen in December, and it was reopened as what it's always been, affordable housing complex operated by um, the Skid Row Housing Trust. And it provides um, affordable living accommodations to over 600 low-income residents. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's um, cool. At this point, you know. But as we know, the Cecil is known for its deaths. And we'll get to that. But really quick, I have to talk about... So if you Google the, ho the Cecil Hotel, this, the picture you get is the side mm -hmm. of the building. You never even see the front. You always see where the... Um, the painted side. Yeah, the painted yeah. side. Which someone painted over. What? And nobody knows, like, they think it was actually illegal. Like, they, in 20, it was, this was in April. Someone came in and painted over it. Now, there's rumor that they're doing a new mural on the side, and they have this guy that's, like, really doing famous it. to do yeah. it. But it's interesting, because, like, so. Oh, my God. You can see, like, that at one point said monthly, and it's, like, oh, all yeah. moved and over. Yeah. <laughs> And I just, I, I'm not reading all this. I just wanted to print it out and yeah. talk about it. Because, like, that's what I think of. Whenever oh when someone gosh. says the Cecil Hotel, I immediately yeah. think of this. And I'm like, I wish I thought of like, something else. I don't know. So, first documented suicide at the Cecil occurred the evening of January 22nd, 1927. Oh, so, yeah. it had been open for three years at this point. Good, good. Actually, it probably wasn't even open three years because it was built in 24. So, who knows? It was pretty, pretty early on. Um, Percy Osmond Cook, 52, shot himself in the head while inside the hotel after failing to reconcile with his wife and child. Aww. He was rushed to the hospital, but he died on the way. The next reported death occurred in 1931 
when W.K. Norton died in his room after taking poison capsules. Just like okay. my favorite way. Okay. So I have all of them. So I'm a, ter- I'm a crazy person here. Well, that's um, the graph. Okay. Yeah, it's just my people quick. Okay. It was just okay. the quickest way to do this. You I got really. Peeps. Yeah, I got graphed out peeps here. So, <laughs> um, so that's our first guy, and that's our poison capsule guy. All right. Then in September 1934, Benjamin Dodditch, gunshot to the head. Um, Self-inflicted. He okay. did not leave a suicide note. 1937, Sergeant Lewis Borden, 53, suicide. He slit his own throat Ugh. in his room. That's a shitty way to go. I bet that room was a mess. Do you know, are they are they all in the same rooms or near the same rooms? No, there's nothing like that. Um, he left a note. He left several notes, and he oh. cited poor health for his reasons for okay. suicide. Okay. Um, this person, oh, Grace, Magro, Mar- Magro, 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 Magro. Margo? No. M-A-G-R-O. Yeah, Margo. Margo. Oh. <laughs> Dyslexia. <laughs> she fell from a ninth-story window. Her fall was broken by telephone wires. Oh, my God. Which were wrapped around her body, and she later died at the now... Demolished Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. Oh my God. Um, not able to determine if this was suicide or if it was murder. January 1939. Um, so, like, we're just marching right on here. Roy Thompson's suicide fell from the building. Oh. Um, oh. 1939, May, same year. Irwin C. Neblet ingested poison. He was a Navy, naval officer. Um, like well, I said, poison must be readily available. I guess it still is. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, this one was a teacher. 1940, um, Dorothy Sager registered under a pseudonym and ingested poison um, while staying at the Cecil. And it was reported that she was near death beforehand and sent her relatives a note indicating she was going to end her life. So... Um, again, not well, so decided to just put an end to it. Dorothy Jean Purcell. Oh, no. Oh, ooh, yeah. I wasn't going to do this one. So skip it. <laughs> oh, my God. So. Okay, so. Is, she, but are, are hotels just this? Purcell was sharing a room at the Cecil with her boyfriend, shoe salesman, Ben Levine. She had apparently been aware, unaware that she was pregnant and went into labor. She later oh. testified she did not want to dis- disrupt him, so she went to the bathroom where she gave birth to the boy. Thinking the baby was dead, she threw him out the window. What? And he landed on the roof of an adjacent building. She was charged with murder. Three psychiatrists testified that she was mentally confused at the time of the incident, and she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Oh, my God. So, three more people fell from the building after that in 47, 54, and 62. You think they'd just fucking lock that area, man? <laughs> so. Well, unless, of course, you know, it's haunted in there. All right. Demons more, are opening doors. Another suicide in 1962. Jesus Christ. Uh, another fall from the building. Um, I didn't read the rest of them to see if anyone else got hung up in the telephone, telephone lines. I mean. Uh... Anyway, um, so many missed calls that day. Yeah. So the next person um, is who I'm going to cover. But real quick, after the person I'm going to talk about today, there was another one, two, one, two, three more suicides. Possibly Elisa Lamb. I'm not going to count her because that's a whole other thing. Right. Um, but yeah, it probably is. Cons- I would say suicide anyway. We'll get to that. Is this And then finally, the most recent one was in 2015. Um, 28-year-old guy. So like just a couple years ago. Well, a couple years ago. It's more than a couple. I'm, but it was closed there in like 20. So I'm sure now that it's open again. <laughs> um, residents call it the suicide hotel. That's what they call it. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. But I also think, now think about it too from the point of view that like it didn't do so well. 
So it was kind of the low rent place you went, like when yeah. that was, you know, all you had. Yeah. You're not checking into the nice place, right? And you're probably but, not checking out. But so the Cecil in itself, like, and honestly, I look, there's nothing about it being haunted, which I think is strange. Unless you watch the Ghost Adventures episode. <laughs> and it's haunted. According to, like, yeah, but, like, there's no, like, people that live there saying that they're oh. experiencing things or that, like... I don't remember the episode. And, like, let's be real. I think some of that shit's just staged anyway. Yeah, I didn't watch it. Like, I don't... hashtag, I want to believe. Hey, a lot of people but... die here, so I'm sure it's haunted. And I'm not saying that somebody's never said anything, but when I looked it up, it wasn't, mm-hmm. like, that... That is not what comes up it's when you the Google thing. the Cecil Hotel. Right, yeah. You know? What comes up... And I'm sure, like, if people... If this is... if go surreal and that many people jumped out of windows or committed suicide or slit their freaking throats in this place if it's you know it could be haunted it's just funny to me that that's not the first thing that people like think about right yeah Yeah. um sorry coffee minute there okay break so one of the hotel's first victims that was not a suicide Mm -hmm. um is really kind of forgotten and I called this part of the story Goldie Who. Um, so even like the um, the Lisa Lamb thing and everybody went crazy about it. And we will talk about it because it is a really interesting story. Um, this person's murder was actually way more horrific. Mm-hmm. Like this was way worse. <laughs> Just it was pre-internet, pre-like Everything. media. Yeah. Nobody covered it. Um, so I don't have a lot of great information and that sucks. But I wanted to start with... Um, Pigeon Goldie Osgood. All right. So, as with most people before the the, the you know lived during the before the age of the internet, we really don't know much about her. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that she was a telephone operator, which was a typical job for women in the early 1900s. Um, she um, managed like the switchboard and took mm-hmm. cult, like te- you know like telephone operator. My dad yeah. was telephone operator for a while. Anyway, plug in, plug out, plug, plug in, plug out. So nobody knows if she was married or had children. Um, most people were, um, but because of the Great Depression, there was this kind of weird movement where people, like women, could live on their own because, like, they would get, like, they were given jobs. Like people mm-hmm. would give them like factory jobs or telephone operator jobs, and they didn't necessarily need like a husband. Oh, yeah. But um, anyway, so. What we do know is um, by 1958, when she arrives at the Cecil Hotel, she is alone oh. with no family. So whether her husband, yeah, I mean, right. like, it's stupid like that they don't know this. And I did do a little digging, probably not as much as I could have, but like, you know, I did find like multiple reporters though. They're, they're like, yeah, we can't figure it out. <laughs> And I'm like, it's crazy. But, which means there probably wasn't a marriage certificate. So my guess is she wasn't. My guess is she wasn't married. She was probably single. Maybe Pigeon um, wasn't her real name. It's not. I'll oh, get to that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Her real name was Goldie. They just, they just called her Pigeon Goldie because she fed the pigeons every day. Oh. Kind of like that lady in Home Alone 2. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. <laughs> All right, so... She's alone, age 59, and she's staying at the Cecil because, you know, probably didn't, if it's just her on her own in a time where, like, pensions weren't big, she, you know, probably wouldn't have been able to save a lot of money, so she needed to live somewhere really inexpensive, you know. She's a bit of a spinster. Yeah, and I really don't think that she, I think she was just a single lady. Yeah, and I think that's cool. cool. And, um, so she, like other guests, like I said, she became more like a tenant and lived there for years. Yeah. So she moved in in 50, what did I say? 58. So um, several years later um, is when this happens. But really quick, though, like just because, you know, she's this like, I, we were like saying words like spinster yeah. and stuff. I love horrible. the word spinster. I know. But like she was also like the life of the cecil everyone knew her everyone Mm -hmm. talked to her she was well liked by everyone um she was well known all through the area and every day she would go to pershing square um and wear her la dodgers baseball cap 
<laughs> and take a big bag of bird seed and she would stand there for hours feeding pigeons oh, and great. she'd chase away the larger birds to make sure the little ones could get their food and like yeah. her community like just freaking loved her um and that's how she got the nickname pigeon, pigeon goldie okay yeah um so she would just basically go over there every day and then she'd come back to her room and um on the particular evening she had chatted um with several tenants so she just you know went and did her normal day came back and actually talked to a bunch of people um and then walked into her room and an hour later her body was discovered so like she was like walked in talked to people Mm -hmm. went into her room and was immediately killed um so basically who was it oh a guy was distributing phone books he was like walking around giving out phone books to everybody because you know phone books Mm -hmm. and he discovered her body within an hour of the last time someone had spoken to her so it was pretty like immediate um her room was ransacked and there was it was noted that the bags of birdseed and the dodger's cap were like right on the floor close to the body so she was probably attacked as soon as she got in got in there um everyone was really surprised at how quickly it happened um well yeah yeah so I'm sorry, my brain just stopped working there for a second. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. I feel like I'm missing some I feel like you last week or the other week when oh you were missing a page. And I found that page and I read it and there was like a whole other section of oh weirdness God. that happened on the night that woman died. And I was like, well fuck. <laughs> anyway. Irrelevant so, now. All right. I'm sorry. I don't know. I was the one that wanted to come and do this early and it's not it's backfiring. <laughs> hundred percent all right um so here's the clipping from the los angeles um, newspaper about her death the coroner said yesterday that pigeon goldie osgood a 65 year old woman around familiar around pershing square was strangled raped and stabbed mrs osgood's body was found in her downtown hotel room thursday night an autopsy disclosed that she'd been choked to death with a hand towel Um, and they go on to talk about her, um, you know, who she was a little bit. And detectives said they're trying to determine if there was a connection between her death and that of two other women slain downtown in the last two months. A woman was stabbed to death May 16th in a hotel a block away from Mrs. Osgood's. Another woman known for her care of birds in MacArthur Park was stabbed <gasps> to death in There's April. There's the connection. The birds so, are the connection. Um... There was a guy that was arrested. His name was Jacques Ellinger. He was 29. He was roaming the streets covered in blood, but he was later ruled out. So they must have figured out what that blood was from, and it wasn't Goldie. Um, Like I said, it was connected to two other crimes. Um, The most likely lead came from the connection made by the medical examiner between Goldie's death and the death of uh, Viva Brown. She was... um, she was 50, so she was older, like like Goldie. Like, mm-hmm. they were the yeah. same, similar in age. And um, they were both killed in the same way. And she was the one that was also staying at a hotel. Oh. So, like, it's kind of interesting, like... Yeah. Um, but despite having these two murders of older women that had the same M.O., they weren't able to identify any suspects. Um, and it also didn't seem like whoever did this was new to killing like mm-hmm. it was quick and efficient there was no like mistakes it was very Hiding like in the rooms like how right. did you gain access um, it's premeditated so, like yeah and also like he probably didn't stop murdering after that Mm-mm. um it sounds a lot like a serial killer and he probably doesn't stay in los angeles he probably moves hit on. two ladies in la and moves on to the next place yeah. um it'd be interesting to do like a huge weird deep dive into this time period to find out if there was like murders in other you know hotels of women of a later age because you know that's not super common um so especially with the sexual assaults yeah um if they were alive they'd be in their late 70s at this point but it's really unlikely that anyone is ever gonna find out who killed her 
Yeah. Um, there's no real evidence. There's nothing that they can really track. And she doesn't have any family or anyone to, yeah. you know, keep pushing for that. Um, but the nice thing, the nice ending, I do have a nice ending. Okay. So um, there's really, like, it's interesting, like, the person that I was reading this, and I looked it up, and they, there is, like, a random picture, but it feels like it's, it's not real either. So there's no pictures of her, which is crazy, like... You know, like, I mean, that's not crazy, but it is like, well, again, no family to be like, do you have a picture? Like, you know, a lot of times like, well, cameras weren't super common then either. No, but like if you're a reporter, you would go to the family and I mean, it is, you know, it was the late sixties, like somebody would have probably had a picture at some point of her if she had other people, you know, like. Like you would have a family picture, or well, like unless something. she was like a vagrant, so you, they don't even know where she's from. Like she, moved. no, she lived there. Like does yeah, she? No, but I mean, she moved there. Like she wasn't a like a, like she didn't grow up in L.A. Like she. No, from, I think she did. Um, she just lived at the Cecil at the end. That's all. Oh, um, she worked as a telephone operator there. Be, like, there. You'd think there'd be like a school picture, or like, well, I guess she's a little older than I may not have had yeah. that either. Like, I don't, I mean, that's my impression is that she always lived there. She just ended up at the Cecil. Uh, she was a telephone operator. So hmm. there's no indication that she came from somewhere else. If, if she did, I mean, it's possible, but there's no indication of that. Um, and it makes sense too. like, why would you, like, if she's like low on money, she wouldn't move to LA after she retires. She would just stay wherever she is. And well, I was thinking maybe where she, if she was from a small town, she couldn't find work. So she maybe moved to LA to got get a, a job, job. yeah had maybe cheap housing and just and then just stayed yeah that's true but all right so like i said no pictures but her friends were super upset mm-hmm. when she died and there's another article that was published not long after the one i read um about that that she um went out like all of the neighbors came out and they bought all these flowers and planted them all around where she would go mm-hmm. and feed the birds. And there's Aww. like a little memorial there to her. Oh, is it still there? I think so. Yes. That's Aww. my understanding. And so if I ever go to LA, I have to check it out. But I think it's so cool. Like her, there's all these people that lived in this, you know, like low income housing, you know, like yeah. all put, like, and it was probably a big deal to them. And they all got together and, like, planted this little memorial and put yeah. flowers there in honor of her. So she That's wasn't sweet. really, like, forgotten completely, at least by the people who knew her. And, you know, so. Yeah. But she is the first Cecil victim that's not just, like, a straight-up suicide. Suicide. So. Wow. Bummer. That's it. All right. Because, you know, we're trying to... Oh, did you hear that? Mm-hmm. Those are my shoulders, everybody. Hooray for aging. Oh, it's lovely. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have a title for mine, and mine's called, Who You Gonna Call? Get it? I because do. of who I'm doing? Okay. All right. So it's finally October, uh, which is when, you know, I thrive, So and so does the spook. And although I talk a lot about hauntings and ghosts throughout the year, um, this month, we are going to do a concentrated dose of ghost. That kind of rhymes, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is going to be a, a series of stories, and they all focus around one couple whom I'm certain that at this point everyone has heard of, thanks to the surge of recent movies regarding their cases. Thank you to James Wan for that. Um, everyone in the last decade has probably learned their name and most of their stories. But if you haven't guessed it, uh, they are the ghost-busting couples themselves, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, first, we're going to discuss who these two actually were, just in case you know you don't know who you're going to call. Well, maybe not anymore. <laughs> not directly, anyway. All right, so let's start with Ed. Ed Warren Miney, yes, Warren was his middle name, not his last name, was born September 7th, 1925 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. When little little Ed was five, he claims that his house was haunted. And with those claims, he said that he saw um, an apparition, I believe it was in his room, that first showed as like a dot of light, and then eventually it grew larger until it transformed. And 
like I only read this the one time. It transformed into a woman, and then the one report said that it transformed into their former landlady, which I don't know why that is important, but it, like whatever. And then in so in one of Ed's many books, because the Warrens wrote a lot of books, like <laughs> there are so many books. He said this: she was semi-transparent, wearing what looked like some sort of shroud, and then she vanished. After this first vision, he then started dreaming or and or seeing dead relatives whom he had never actually met. One of these relatives was an aunt, and she would deliver messages to him, telling him of his possible future. One of these prophecies was that Ed would, in life, help many priests, but that he himself would never become one. Wah, wah. Um... And then his house also had, you know, just the regular old haunting things with doors and cabinets opening and closing on their own, you know, like the usual. And then Lorraine. She was born Lorraine Rita Morin, also in Bridgeport, Connecticut, on January 31st, 1927. Both Ed and Lorraine, in case you, if you didn't know, grew up in devout Catholic homes, and they themselves were devout Catholics throughout their entire lives. But Lorraine attended a Catholic school growing up. Lorraine says that she did have strange experiences when she was young, but being a child, she thought that these were just simply normal things, and some of the things that she was able to do, she thought that everybody could do them. One story was that she, was, that she told was when she was around nine, and she started seeing lights around people, aka auras. And in the Catholic school that she attended, there were two nuns overseeing the kids, a sister Joseph and the mother superior. I'm going to go by that title from now on. I am Mother Superior. <laughs> anyway, she tells Sister Joseph that her light is much brighter than Mother Superior's light, which, uh-oh, you don't do that. Um, the mother overhears this and tells Lorraine that we don't speak of such things here. And even at home, when she would try to discuss these events with her family, she was never really taken seriously, and it was mostly dismissed. So, you know, as she grew up, she knew that, one, I'm not allowed to talk about these things, and two, I should try to ignore them. Like, they're not okay. So fast forward to their teen years. Although they lived in the same town, the two never actually met until around the age of 16. Ed was working at a local theater as an usher, and Lorraine frequented the theater with her family. And the two seemed to like each other when they saw each other a couple times, so Ed asked Lorraine out on a date, and clearly that went well. According to Lorraine, on the night of their date, she states she saw Ed, who at the time was an athletic teenager, and she witnessed him become an older man and said, I'll spend the rest of my life with him. Two years later, they were married. But before they were married, Ed enlisted in the Navy and was deployed to serve in World War II. And then during his deployment, he almost died. One of the ships he was on, on, along with another ship and an oil tanker, collided, causing a super large explosion. Ed survived the explosion, but was left swimming, I guess, in the I guess it said ice-cold Atlantic. This whole experience left Ed feeling or, and or knowing that there was something more divine happening around us. While in the water, he says he saw his mates and he wanted to get to them, but due to like the fire that was surrounding them, he wasn't able to swim to them. And according to Ed, he states, I said a prayer to the Blessed Mother and the gasoline opened and, opened and went around us because I guess he, like the fire was coming towards him. Then a Coast Guard boat comes through the flames and pulls us out of the water. It was miraculous. Is that an angel? Question mark. Um, Ed returned home to Lorraine and they married and they had a daughter named Judy. And Judy is the only um, child that they have throughout their life. Ed then decided to go back to art school, <clears throat> and Lorraine stated that because of his schooling and her desire to paint as well, that when we began our marriage, we began our marriage under the assumption that we were going to be artists. Eventually, he decided that there wasn't anything the professors could teach him, and he went his own way. That would be sarcasm, but he quit art school. In order to make money, the couple set up quote-unquote pop-up stands in heavy tourist areas of New England, and he did sell his paintings, and that's kind of how they made a living. And also the pair had this love of haunted houses. So between his haunted house and her abilities, um, they, you know, kind of, I think they connected in that manner as well. So it, it was the further love of art and hauntings that kind of began their whole career. Ed would peruse newspapers regarding homes, I guess looking for mentions of odd happenings. It's not clear 
but then Ed would sketch out and or paint the house. Lorraine, who was probably the more personable of the two, would use the painting as a ticket to enter the home and to get more information on it. At this time, Lorraine's abilities, she says, were not really honed in, and she was very unsure of herself. And according to Lorraine, in the beginning, I was more than a bit wary of the people whom we spoke. I thought they were kind of suffering from overactive imaginations or were just making things up to get attention. But eventually, she began to notice similarities between all of the experiences. So she just thought it was just all a load of shit. She didn't believe in any of it. And then in 1952, the couple decided to create the New England Society for Psychic Research in order to document the cases that they worked on that were actually hauntings. And with this, they also created the Occult Museum, which was a designated space within their actual home in Monroe, Connecticut. Because why the fuck not, right? Slowly over the years, their notoriety grew and people started calling on them. Hence the Ghostbusters reference. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, something that I think set the couple apart was um, the crew of individuals that they asked to be part of their investigation. So, one, they did do their best to rule out all logical explanations before claiming a space was haunted. And they never took the word... Um, you know, they never took the word of the face value of the word from the people who contacted them. Like, oh, our house is haunted. And they were like, definitely. They, they you know, they, they tried to debunk basically everything. I don't even think debunk was a word back then. I think debunk no. came along with ghost adventures, right? <laughs> um, and then, too, their faith played a huge role in everything that they did. And they worked not only with priests, but also nurses and psychiatrists and other mediums. And then, three, the Warrens never charged for their services. The only thing that they asked for was the cost of gas to get from their house to wherever they happened to be going. So that was also kind of cool. So they weren't in it to, you know, make money. And then I think when people... At first, at least. Yeah, that came later. So they did make money off of licensing and uh, selling their stories. And but, all the books. And all the books. But, I mean, let's be real. If you do this job and you do it because you have a love for it, but it's not paying your goddamn bills... What are you going to do? You're going to sell out. Sell out hard, man. If you're going to sell out, do it big. Make millions and just fucking do it. Like, I can't blame them for doing that. But um, whatever. It does, though, put some of it into question. I, it was already in question. Because, you well, know. I mean, but it, it further bolsters the... It does, Yeah. Well, That's and then all. we'll go into that with some of these um, yeah, with the other ones, stories. But. Yeah. Um, but I do like that they would bring in psychiatrists yeah. and nurses to have like some sort of, you know, science backing to the things that they were doing. So Ed, who was a self-taught and self-proclaimed demonologist, became the only non-ordained demonologist recognized by the Catholic Church, which I guess is, you know, kind of a, a big boast. Like, hey, well, I'm not ordained but i'm recognized um of this thing that doesn't exist <laughs> except because except for in the catholic church man i guess they do um i don't know how you become a demonologist i think maybe you can do it online <laughs> you can do anything online now um and then lorraine's uh clairvoyant abilities grew as well she was described as a clairvoyant and light trance medium I don't know what that means exactly. When entering a home, she wouldn't want to know any of the details ahead of entering, and her technique was to go to lay on the bed, uh, like in the house, like I guess she picked all the beds or maybe just the main bedroom. But she would go into that house, she would lay on the bed, and she said that this helped her gain a sense of the energies that were inside the house. And she did this, I guess, every time. You know, everyone's got their own way of doing things. Like, I'm not judging. It's cool, whatever. So, um, when the supernatural or paranormal, paranormal, that's kind of hard to say, um, is discussed, there's always those that believe, and then there's those that just simply don't. So, throughout their lifetime, the Warrens were accused of being frauds and taking advantage of people in vulnerable, vulnerable situations. Same excuse that was used to debunk the spiritualists in the Victorian age. As we will get into, the Warrens became part of some really big paranormal investigations. An actress 
actress turned psychologist and parapsychologist who was working with the UCLA studying the paranormal. And she actually invented something called uh, Kirillian photography, which is uh, a special camera that takes photo essentially of your auras. And it's still a thing today. People are obsessed with aura photography. But anyway, this woman invented that. Um, she tested Lorraine and her clairvoyant abilities, and according to Dr. Thelma Moss, Lorraine's abilities were, quote, far above average. And then since they didn't really charge money, the Warrens began giving lectures at universities in the 1960s because they believed there was a growing interest in the occult and that many people around that age were being affected by a dark phenomenon. Their hope was that through their lectures that they could discourage people from exploring the occult in things that they didn't understand. What they were especially concerned about was the use of occult objects such as the Ouija board, tarot, and anything else that might open the door for spirits or more so demons to pass through. In which case I'm fucked. So we're good there. There's no helping this now. Um, they were more afraid for those who didn't have faith because those who were non-believers were more susceptible to demonic entities. I think that that's wrong. I don't agree with that. So anyway, in their lifetime, it's believed that they investigated around 3,000 cases of paranormal and of those, 600 needed an exorcism. Both Lorraine and Ed worked closely with the church whoops, and were officially approved exorcists. Although Lorraine, who was a female, was never allowed to perform an exorcism because this is still the Catholic Church, Ed says that due to her abilities, it made her essentially weaker against demons, not because she's a female, because she's a medium. Uh, the couple wrote several books together, had a TV show in the 80s, and held investigations with teams of people. And in one of these books, Ed says this. So in Ghost Tracks, he says, Looking back, I feel I was born with a certain awareness and placed in a position to gather more knowledge in that area. When I didn't have the knowledge I needed, it always seemed to come to me, maybe in the form of insight, another person, or a book, but it would always come to me when I needed it. I did not wake up one day and say, I'll want to be a demonologist, yet I became a respected expert in this field without degrees in theology or psychology or courses in parapsychology. I don't really think that's a boast. Yeah, I was like, maybe just, like maybe while you were doing stuff, you could have taken some of those classes. I mean, like... You just, know, like, like I mean, you dropped out of art school, but, like... It just kind of seems like you're, like, covering up some, like, heavy ignorance here. Like, yeah, I mean, these I, are yeah, huge fields of study. And, and like, there's, there's nothing wrong with having degrees in those. It's not no, a... No, go um, and do that. And, like, <laughs> what makes you... Like, that's the part of... What did he know more than somebody else? That's what I want to know. I have all the same books that he does. Does are we on the same level here? <clears throat> anyway, and after 25 to 30 years of psychic research, many different clergy and leaders and all kinds of religious religions discovered that I somehow understood and knew more about the preternatural than even their learned scholars. Okay. So anyway, he held himself above those who thought they could learn um, how to be men, how to be strong in the face of evil, and he asserted that he didn't need formal training, though he in turn trained others in fairly formal lecture-style settings. So, kind of a, a little bit hypocritical on his part there. But, I mean, just because you're a hypocrite doesn't make you wrong. It just simply makes you a hypocrite. And some people are okay at they can They can handle that. They sleep well at night. So, as we know, the stories and investigations have been made into a modern take on horror movies, creating its own universe thanks to, as mentioned, director James Wan. The first of the movies, The Conjuring, based off the hauntings of the Perrin family, started it all and currently getting ready, I believe, to film The Nun 2, which I think is loosely based on this woman that um, Ed saw in his childhood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. I, I could be wrong with that, but anyway. On Wednesday, August 23rd, 2006, Ed Warren died at home at the age of 79. Then, on Thursday, April 19th, 2019, Lorraine also died in her home at the age of 92. Do you think they're, like, still there? I think they're haunting it? Cause no, I mean, that'd be fucked up. I mean, I think if I went through my whole life investigating the paranormal, wouldn't you want to be a ghost for once? Well, they spent their whole life trying to get people to get rid of the paranormal. And yet they kept it in their damn home. Yeah, well. I mean, 
do as I say, not as I do, right? So the legacy started, continues to this day, as mentioned with the movies, and the research society is still present to this day and is ran by their son-in-law. Their daughter, Judy, is said to also have abilities like her mother, but due to possibly trauma and having been immersed into this world at such a young age, she chooses not to acknowledge it at all, <sighs> and she really has nothing to do with it. It's simply her husband that is just like, full speed ahead. And in Wow, the, that's really fucked up. Yeah. Uh, and one of the podcasts that I listen to, because there's, you know, this is, I'm obviously not the first person to do a story on Ed and Lorraine Warren. I mean, yeah. it's been fucking done over and over and over again. So, um, but this one podcast, uh, they, they brought in, you know, like a lot of the, the issues with, you know, the Catholic church and, you know, the male female thing perspective. And she talks about how, um, they have investigators, but they're all male investigators and women mm -hmm. are on the team but just like ed and lorraine their dynamic they're lesser yeah. like they're not the lead anything they're just kind of there so this whole um because you can't be ordained as a woman well he's not either they're just keeping this alive yeah, as I mean, investigators like, but if you're if they're church like if you're coming from the Catholic Church and you're an investigator, he's just approved by the Catholic Church. Well, I don't know that the son-in-law is. I'm I just saying, like, that, no, I know, yeah. but I'm just saying in general that's why there wouldn't be women in charge because they'd have to be ordained and they can't be. Maybe not by the Catholic Church. There are others. Well, you specifically <laughs> mentioned <laughs> I did, that. I did. Yeah, I did. But they were, but they were just mentioning how even now, like, they're not. I don't think they're immersed in the Catholic Church anymore. I don't know that they follow that sort that they follow that um, I don't know faith dogma I don't know whatever the fuck you want to call it, um, but still it's just men in charge and the Wait, I'm, the I'm actual confused. daughter. Are you talking about like in general or just the daughter and husband? The, so the paranormal this society still exists. Okay, and it has a crew of people, but the people who are like the lead investigators. Oh, I thought you were just talking in general about no, like No, no, no. So the Society for the New okay. England Society yeah, of I wasn't Paranormal clear Research, about that. yeah. That um their son-in-law took over because gotcha. their daughter wants nothing to do with it. So gotcha. they still I guess they still do investigations on other than having a webpage and bragging that he's Ed Lorraine's son-in-law. I don't really see what he's done. Right. Okay. Um but so it's just their little group is yes, what you're talking about. Yes, okay. but there's no females in charge. There's no women. It's just a bunch of dudes, and all the women are kind of like background characters. Whatever. It's not important. I just thought it was kind of interesting that he's the well, son-in-law I guess, I guess what I was, I guess what I'm getting at is, so Ed and Lorraine built this out of a model from the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. and that's how the Catholic Church is run. So it yes. makes sense that they would continue to run it that way. I mean, yeah, but it's like 2022. And they had a daughter, for Christ's sake. 2022 hasn't changed the Catholic Church one bit when oh, it comes to that. So. That's sad. Anyway, whatever. So the occult museum also still exists, but it's not open to the public. There are times when they do open it um, to a few ticket holders during special times of the year. I believe they closed it because, like, it's in their house. This house is an old fucking house. And it doesn't look like they've done anything to it. And I think that there's some zoning issues, and that's why they're not allowed to have people in it. Probably not. But in case you're curious as to what's inside the museum, here's a pared-down version of it. Excellent. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. They have inside a vampire's coffin. Cool. Um, there's a vampire who's probably real pissed about that. I didn't mean to laugh immediately. No, I, I really didn't. Well, that's why I was sorry. laughing. Because I read it, like, and I'm like, what? But seriously, if I was a vampire and they took my coffin, I'd be pissed. But like, how the fuck am I supposed to sleep? <laughs> anyway. Depends what kind of vampire legend you come from. <laughs> I know, right? Well, I, in true blood, I'll just sleep in a fucking basement. It's fine. Um... A tombstone that they believed was used as a satanic altar. I don't know why they thought this. They okay. Um, demon masks, psychic photos, props to set the mood, such as mannequins dressed to give you an idea of what certain legends look like, like the Lady in White. Guys, it's the Lady in White. Do you need a description of the Lady <laughs> in White? She wears a white fucking dress. Typically, looks like a bride whatever 
Anyway. This is dumb. Um, there's a necklace called the Pearls of Death. The story of the pearls is a woman who was gifted the necklace after putting them on, said that she started to feel as if she was being strangled by them and she couldn't get them off. So the people around her had to help her and as pearls were apparently strangling her, which wouldn't they have broken them? If you're being strangled by a set of pearls, I'm not going to keep them intact. I'm going to cut them the fuck off you. Right? Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Just make sure we're on the same page. They might have restrung them or some bullshit like that. Oh, that's true. That seems tedious. Um, <laughs> no, you take it to a jewelry store to do that. <laughs> I don't mean yourself. <laughs> See, in my brain, I would never have thought to take it to a jewelry. Like, I don't have that kind of money. I'll do it myself. <laughs> um, if we, I'm assuming if you have real pearls, you have that kind of money. That's fair. Yeah, no, that's fair. Okay, good point. Um, there's something that is called a crystal mancy, a.k.a. the conjuring mirror. So this story is that of a man in New Jersey who sat in front of this large, ornate, golden-framed mirror and attempted to summon the spirits of his family. How or why? I don't know. It's just a fucking mirror. But okay. He would sit in the dark with a red light, and then after sitting there for several hours, he started to see, quote, ugly monstrosities. And these diabolical faces drove the man mad, and he was sent to a mental institution. And then somehow, the Warrens got it. Then there's the Holy Grail of the museum, and it is the OG Annabelle doll. Okay, for a second, I thought you were going to actually say that they like have like their... <sighs> the Holy Grail? ...version of the Holy Grail, yeah. and I was just like... Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm still, so I'm still down with the fact that the Holy Grail is actually Jesus' bloodline. That's, that's what I think. I think that's my favorite. Ding. What is Maybe it? I'll do an episode about Holy you should. Yes. Okay. Anyway, so this, uh, in case you don't know. Sorry. Yeah, I totally blew your whole lead into the what? <laughs> the Annabelle. <laughs> no, it's fine. Everybody knows what the fucking Annabelle doll is. None of this is new shit, so it doesn't matter. Um, the Annabelle doll is a Raggedy Ann doll. It is not like the cool one that they put in the movie, and I think they did that because of licensing issues. Like they weren't allowed to use the Raggedy Ann doll. Well, and also the one they use in the movie is way scarier looking. Yes, like it's literally like the Annabelle doll is a rag doll. Yeah. Like it's just a rag doll. She's and like, a raggedy and doll. Like they're not scary looking. Oh no, they kind of are. My grandmother okay had they, a raggedy and doll and a boy, and I was like, I hate you. I'm putting you in a chest. Him. Okay, <laughs> those though compared to the actual Annabelle doll. Oh yeah, no, yeah, like there's no not contest. even like a competition. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Um, I'm sure you know the story of the Annabelle doll. This nurse found it. I don't know thought that it was a young child because, you know, the spirits of young children want to possess inanimate objects. It's kind of the thing that they want, right? So this stupid fucking nurse was like, absolutely, come right in, Mikasa Sukasa. And then the dolls haunted and then tried to kill her fucking boyfriend. So, um, and then there's a movie about it. I think yeah. there's a couple movies about yeah, it, actually. Yeah, there's more than one. They just keep going. Anyway. So it sits in a locked glass case with a sign on it that says, positively do not touch. And then there's another thing on it that I thought was really interesting. They have a tarot card nailed to the left side of the door on this like glass casing. Um, and it's the devil tarot card. And I'm like, God, such ignorance. Anyway, I'm like, you guys, you guys, but whatever. Okay. Um, there are huge debates as to the legitimacy of the Warrens and their investigations. After Ed died, several families came forward to recant their original stories, saying that Ed had paid them off. Could be true, maybe not. Either way, most people have an opinion as to what happened and who they were. And then the next few stories that I'm going to do, we're going to dive further into some of these investigations and even go over some of the skepticism surrounding them. So, join us all this month of October to hear a few stories of the Ward Files. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. That was spectacular. Was that good? That was good. Uh, so, but if you want to hear one that we have actually already covered, rewind to last year's Halloween episode where I covered the story of the Conjuring House from the eyes of the Perrin family, not so much the Warren family because one of the Perrin daughters 
um, has come forward and has written her own books and she has her own stories and they don't necessarily not align with what the Warrens were saying, but I, it's not, it's not the same. It's different there. Yeah, there's, it's not the same. Um, however, I really like the Conjuring movie, the first one. So do I. It's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorite, like, ghost horror movies. Like, yeah, haunted horror movies. Yeah. It's, like, you know, it's Julie so... and I said, we like slasher films and stuff like that. Me but too. when it comes to, like, ghost stuff, that one's one of my favorites. I, so I watched it in the theater by myself. I went to the Wellsboro Theater, and it was just me and two other people in the movie theater. And it was in one of the small ones, like, mm. on the left. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I'm not going to be scared at all. <laughs> like, I wasn't necessarily scared per se, but I definitely jumped a couple times. Like, oh, shit. No, it was good. Yeah. They did a great job of, like, oh, and then, like balancing what? the fam, like, your, your, um, the story, your, like, connection to the family with the other part. Right. Sometimes they, I don't know, they either focus way too much on the family and not enough on the ghosties, or too right. much on the ghosties and not enough on the family. And it was good. We want character development and scare development. It was a good and develop. those need to be balanced. It was well-developed. It was well-developed. It was developments. Oh, no, and it was good. What's his name? Patrick Wilson? Yeah. Yeah, he's hot, so that made it that much more nicer. So, <laughs> like, I will watch you all day. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, and that's... That's that. Yeah. That's, so, yeah. Get ready. October 1. Yeah. Well, 2, but yeah. Yeah, it's October 2, but get ready for some scary stories. I got some serial killers coming up, so that's exciting. Whoa. Whoa. Also. Not Dahmer. <laughs> not, not Dahmer. <laughs> he was in Milwaukee, not Los Angeles. Mm. Milwaukee. <laughs> Wayne's World? Yes. Okay. Yep. Got okay. it. All right. Um. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> we were watching something last night. We watched Top Gun Maverick, which is actually really good. Uh, we, we enjoyed it. It's just one of those movies that you can just watch and enjoy and not have to think too deeply about. You just I heard enjoy it's it. ridiculous. Oh, it's so good. But it also made me slightly want to vomit while watching it because just the, the, the flight stuff, I don't know. I don't. My body instantly goes into like a no place. But anyway, um, they were in sit like you know the scene moved the character moved so they over like they showed you a place and it said San Diego California California and then Jared just goes sometimes he's really funny it's it's very it's great he just goes in a very like flat tone he's like did you know that San Diego means whale's vagina <laughs> and I died it doesn't guys it's an Anchorman <laughs> reference but. <laughs> It was great. It was just, it was a great time and great delivery. Uh, um, oh, we will be not here next week. No, we do not have a story next week because so. it's my birthday and I'm going to be 40 and we're going to New York City. Yeah. So. To get drunk. We'll be off having fun. Yes. And hopefully not getting abducted. I don't see that happening, but that's okay. If you do, go for the ears and just rip that shit off like you're Mike Tyson. Just saying. It'll stop something real quick. I don't actually think we're getting abducted. I was just joking because of the podcast. So, you know, we talk about people going missing. And well, like, I mean, if we're not back yeah, if you the week after us, next, I guess. and you don't see any postings at all, there could be a problem. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, Nikki, for your listener story. Yes, thank you. And it was really... You really should check out the Facebook page, Little Merit's Tomb. The pictures are really cool. Oh, my God, my heart. Um, and then I have one. Will we come back? Yep. Oh, that bird tasted like hash browns. It was awful. <laughs> Things you don't need to say while recording. <laughs> but I do anyway. Fabulous. Uh, uh, right. So that's it. Thanks for listening. Have a good week. Uh, have a good next two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. Uh, enjoy your spooky season. Yes. So far. And I feel like there was more I was going to say at the end. And then I just like, I got to write shit down. I'm no, I'm bad at that. I have to, I need to write things down. But okay, that's it. We have nothing else. We've gone on long enough. All right. Your moms love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.